Okay, today is May 27th, 2009. This is Fidencio Marbella with the Melrose Park Public Library in Illinois. Also present is Heidi Beasley, a reference librarian here at Melrose Park. Today we will be speaking with Mr. Angelo Petiti, uh, currently a resident of Oakbrook. Uh, Angelo served in the Army Air Forces and his service dates for, were from 1942 through 1945. 46. 46, thank you. This interview is being conducted for the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Sir, why don't you tell us uh, when and where you were born and a little bit about your family when you were growing up. You don't know, you don't want to know about my family. Okay. Okay, because we grew up in the moonshine days. So that's history. Okay. Well, I went to Crane Tech and the whole graduating class, which was 1,100 male, because Crane Tech was an all-boys school. Okay, we're one eight. Classified one eight. I graduated in the class of forty. By forty one, of course, you know we all had classifications. So I graduated with a fellow by the name of Leo Carzoli, who was the the chief navigator on B twenty fours in the Poesti raid. Highly decorated soldier. Him and I, we didn't want to go to the Army, so we we took the exam for cadet school, and we passed with high grades. Of course, you know, Crane Tech was a very technical school. You, you, you had uh, classes in math and physics and so forth that you prepared for anything. So we both went to cadets. He went as a navigator. I went as going as a pilot training. I was too small to be a pilot, so they sent me to navigation bombardier school. I finished school in Roswell, New Mexico, waiting for graduation, and I got eliminated. Now, you know what elimination means? They want you to do something else. <laughs> Rather than give you court martial, they called it elimination. They didn't want to release me because they spent all that money to train me. And I got eliminated for conduct on becoming a future officer. That story ain't good enough for you, okay? So from there they sent me to radio school, and I ended up as a radio operator navigator. Okay. Now, uh, can you tell us where you were when you heard about uh, Pearl Harbor on December 7th? School. You were in school, you were yeah, school on I Sunday? I wanted to go to college, yeah. Okay. I didn't want to go to the Army. I wanted to go to college. Okay. Okay. Now, how did you like... Uh, can you tell us about your radio training? What kind of things did I they teach you? I had very good training. I went training... At, I trained in Sioux Falls, South Dakota on the preliminaries and the technical and the mechanics of radio transmitters. Then I went to a radio school in England in Southampton on high frequency sets and, and uh, radar equipment, simulated radar. At that time, we were experimenting with blind landing approach, Bendix transmitters and so Bendix receivers and stuff like that. Highly technical equipment. No, I had a lot of training, believe me. Uncle Sam wasted a lot of money on me. Yeah. When I came out of the service, they offered me a job, and I took it for a few months. I operated the towers downtown between Fort Sheridan and Washington. 
the radio tower transmitter. It wasn't for me. It was like being in jail. So that's part of my experience. Okay, okay so you uh, left the U.S. for Southampton in England? Uh, I don't know if I would. No, was I it? didn't go to Southampton. I think the original base was Nottingham. Okay. I'm not sure. That's why I would like to get my records. Okay. And uh, if my flying companion from Jersey comes in this month, I'll bring him in. He's got. He's a doctor, and he's got a good memory. He remembers what bases we were in England. Okay. Understand better than I do. Okay. Because uh, from there, well, you do the questions. Oh, no, that's right. This is your interview. Um, okay, so after you were trained as a, a radio operator, uh, what unit were you assigned to then? Right there, 47 Troop Carrier Squadron. Okay. Uh, 313th Group. What group is it? I get it mixed Let's up. See. Got an interview guy that don't know nothing. <laughs> I just can't read this writing. <laughs> I don't mean to tease him. <laughs> I, I wrote it down here. I forget. I'm sorry. Right. Right here, 313. 313th, okay. 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 That's the wing. And that was a troop carrier. Yeah, it was troop carrier. Okay. Yeah, it was troop carrier. Okay. But I flew probably in every airplane you could name it from B 29 John. Okay. Because we had a, a fuel tanker. We used to bring our own food. I'll show you some photographs, which was a B 29. Converted, I mean, B 24. Yeah. Okay, so your first missions were flown on the C-47s? All, mostly all C-47s, okay. which was the best airplane the Air Force had. Okay. What made it so good compared to other aircraft? You could fly with half a wing with one engine and no gas. It would stay up okay. with holes in it. Yeah. A very rugged aircraft. Oh, yes. my gosh. What I went through in that airplane. Come, every time we come down, we count the bullet holes. How that airplane, and don't forget, we had no armor. And we had no self-sealing gas tanks. The Air Force had their head in the rest when they designed it, but it was a good aircraft. You could fly at low speeds. You could fly uh, what we used to call grasshopping. You could fly it through anything. You could hit birds, and they'd go through the air system, the heating system, and you could still fly. It was an airplane. It was a rugged airplane. It was like a, an old Model T Ford. It's go through anything. Okay. So you were in England then uh, in 1944. Uh, I think I got there in, in 40 in June. Uh, I forget the date okay. I got there. I got there. I don't think it was a month or two before D-Day. Okay. Can you tell us about your uh, D-Day missions? Well, we made more than one. That's yes. another thing right. I can't understand. They talk about D-Day mission. There was no such thing as single mission. Right. You went in, you come back, you got more, and you went back again. Okay. Can you tell us about that day? Yeah, it was pretty rough. 
pretty rough, but uh, very, very few defense against aircraft. Uh, we landed, we dropped our troops 10 miles behind the front. And at that time, of course, the beachhead wasn't established yet. But uh, we, we dropped the uh, pathfinders in before, I think it was the night before. I can't be exact about the time of that. But the pathfinders were dropped first. They were the ones that put radio, radio equipment transmitters and panels for your drop zones. Okay. Then we came in the next day, next morning, with paratroopers. No gliders, just mostly paratroopers. Then we come back with a second trip. Then we come back to pick up wounded on the third trip. I think we flew four or five times in the... In the I flew in Omaha Beach. I don't know many. Okay. And I, it was a dirty swim because I have a photograph for two little French girls after about the third day when we landed with their little tykes, they come and clean my airplane out with booms. You know, I'll never forget that. Them are the, them are the things you don't forget, see? But that, that was about the extent of that, because uh, after the first few days, it was all supplies, you know, supplies, paratroops for around supplies, mostly supplies that return and wounded, see? Because the C-47 was a workhorse. After you drop paratroops, you fix the litters to carry the stiffs. Okay. So then after uh, the Normandy invasion, uh, what did your unit uh, have to do next? <laughs> uh, yeah. Where did they find you? You don't know nothing about the war. No, huh? I, I have to ask you because uh, uh, okay. people listening might not know. Okay. This ain't lost because this is part of your issue. They give you this. You're flying log. The dates are on here. Okay. And the hours, okay? By the, by the way, uh, this is coming another time. Show many hours a day, every day of the week, every day of the month, for 18 months straight. Six hours a day. If you're not dropping paratroopers, you're dropping gas cans or 100-pound bombs for Patton. All right? Wow. So how, every day. How were you able to keep up a pace like that? That's, huh? that's amazing you were able to keep up a pace like that. That's another part of the story you want to put in there. Okay. Tell us about that. The day I was supposed to go overseas, my daughter was being born. The rotten captain, the dirty bastard, he wouldn't give me a pass. I wanted a pass from Sedalia, Missouri to see my daughter or my wife before I left. He says, no go, you're going overseas. I went AWOL, okay? When I got to Rush Hospital, the MPs were waiting for me with the chains. I gave them a saw book apiece, and they waited till my daughter was born. And by the way, her birthday, it was just for my... Anyway, I went back, and I... He was so mad. 
because I was assigned on the first flight across the North Atlantic. He says, rather than put you in a stockade, I want to give you worse punishment. He says, I'm sending you overseas. Well, he followed us overseas, and he was the one that did the scheduling. He wanted to kill me, the dirty bastard, but I fooled him. Every day, and I had a, I had a, a second radio man. They used to beg me. They wanted to get a, a medal. You understand? He said, let me go. I, I said, tell the captain, right? He would never give me a time off. And this no. is for 18 months? You see it. Wow. It's all verified and signed every day all the way to. In fact, I put so much time in, they gave me this after. Okay, so you, <laughs> you could copy these. Yes, yeah, we'll make copies. This log is <clears throat> it's very important, so you understand? Okay. But you can see the hours I put in. Okay. Oh my gosh. Seventy two hours a month for flying. That's a lot of a lot of flying. Okay. And the co pilots and pilots' names are here. Okay. Now that last mission that I got shot down, I flew with Hotshot Diltz was the pilot. Co-pilot was Captain Wallace. The engineer was Frenchy Bordeaux. I got photographs of them, which was it was quite an experience. Okay. Can you tell us about that last mission where you were shot down? The last mission we got shot down, we carried 30 paratroopers, and uh, 18 planes went in. And the formation was very tight. And that C-46, you couldn't slow down. In fact, one plane went down, stalled out, and went down and killed 30 paratroopers and a four-man crew right, right off my wing. When you slowed down to 90 miles an hour, you let your flaps out to slow down, it would stall out. Couldn't handle it. And you can't throw a paratrooper out over 90 miles an hour. The slipstream will knock his head off. So when you give the paratrooper green light to go, you go back there and see what's going on. Well, we got hit one one hit in the cockpit and knocked all our instruments out with plexiglass. Second hit was underneath and knocked the hydraulic system out. Two hits in the fuselage, one right above you, daylight. The vertical stabilizer got shot a hole in it. There was nothing left but hinge and hinge. All right. Want to know more than that? After we dropped the paratroopers, we hit the deck. I was so close to the ground, you could see the crowd shooting at you. We didn't know which way we were going. It was all smoke screen in Wessel, Germany. We saw another ship. We followed it. It crossed the Rhine River. We didn't know whether we were going east or west. We were lost. We had no equipment of any kind. <clears throat> so the pilots stayed at treetop level trying to get altitude because he wasn't sure of anything. He wasn't sure of his fuel mixture. He wasn't sure of his, his flaps. He wasn't sure of his tachometer. He wasn't, he wasn't sure of anything. So, me... I want to sit by the back door. I used to hear him call me, Angel, get me a fix. I 
Don't scratch your ass. I want to get what I can get out of this thing. But anyway, we finally got up to about 1,500 feet. Not even that high, maybe 1,000 feet. And the plane we were following all got, the whole crew ditched, bailed out. They probably got hit worse than us. So we kept flying. No radios, but we had one. I just didn't think of it. We had one that was a British equipment. It was a, what you call the crystal set in those days. You know, you, you put in a frequency cartridge. I forgot all about it. <clears throat> but we nothing worked. I couldn't get a fix for them. I shot out some red flares on the very pistol. I got some green flares in the distance. We headed that direction. Okay? which was a fight, a frontline P-47 fighter base, right over the Rhine River. Well, what we did, the pilot fishtailed that airplane. He didn't know his airspeed, he didn't know anything. We came in, we couldn't put the tail assembly down. We hit the end of the runway so fast, the ground loop. Of course, the plane was a total loss anyway. But the wing dug in the mud and Three or four times we circled. We all jumped out before it stopped circling. Yeah. Now, now you know why they give you khaki shorts in the army. <laughs> anyway, they they pick up the crew and they take us into the, the fighter base. And here I'm a hundred miles behind the front, my base, and I sleep in a pup tent. And I have my meals out of a tent. Here are these fighter pilots had French women serving them, you know, first class tablecloths, you dirty bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but that was part of the war. Anyway, we were there two, a couple of days, and they sent a ship to pick us up. That ship was a total loss. And, uh, I don't know if you ever saw one of those planes, did you? The C-46? Yeah. Is that the one with the twin tail? No. Oh, boy, oh, boy. That's what I said. I got a real interview guy with you. <laughs> this is it. See how large it is? So these are much bigger aircraft than the C-47s? Carries twice as much twice personnel, but it, it, it killed more too. I see. Yeah, I got a decent shot. Here it is. Okay. Okay. Uh, you see, when I tell you we shot out, you see the hinge here. Yes. Now that's quite large. Man can walk through that. From hinge to hinge was a hole. But it still flew. It flew, but you couldn't handle any couldn't. direction. And the pilot, what we call in flying, it's called fishtailing. When they train you to fly, they train you how to slow an airplane by manipulating your rudder. So I had a good pilot. His name was Hotshot Biltz. He brought that in like he was bringing in a Piper Cub. You follow me? He, didn't, he couldn't drop flaps. He didn't know what the hell you were doing. The front was all shot out. bottom was shot out. Uh, if I can show you a copy of the fuselage, it, it's something to see.
There. There's a few slides. There was a whole area you could walk through, and one on the bottom. And this was it. And it only had 75 hours on it. It's a brand new plane. Brand new. Brand new. Okay. Can you tell us about uh, your missions that you flew over the uh, Ardennes and the Battle of the Bulge? Well, that was uh, Battle of the Bulge. I was flying at that time. We just made the Holland invasion. Oh, you flew uh, Market Garden? I flew Market. I told you, I okay. didn't miss one. Okay. I flew at Eindhoven. I flew, uh, and I flew the British in when they got slaughtered, the 10,000. We flew that group in, the Red Devils. I trained with them at, outside of in England, by the river, you know, simulated condition before that mission. In fact, I stole a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story in itself. <laughs> anyway, we were we were retrieving gliders. Did you ever hear the glider snatch, the the snatch, picking up an airplane on the ground without landing? No, I did can, that. Can you describe that? Well, what was that like? Very treacherous. There's another decoration you got coming. They put two. Uh, there's a there's an article in here about that. But I did it for two weeks, and uh, all the airplanes that were. The sign that it was four airplanes. They all crashed or did something. I was the last plane to survive. Well, it remind me. To, uh, you want me to look for it? Um, if, can you just describe it for us? Yeah. Okay. On the glider, they tried to salvage gliders outside of uh, Eindhoven after we dropped them there. And uh, I guess they must. Oh, here it is. No, that ain't it. That's one of the. And they they, they uh, equipped the plane with a big clutch. You'd come in uh, off the treetop. There'd be two big poles with a rope across, and a line to the glider. In our plane, we had a clutch about the, half the size of this table. With over 1,500 foot of steel cable. We dropped that with a hook on it. <clears throat> We'd make a hook up that would gradually tighten up and release enough to pull. You'd hit that hook up at about 90 miles an hour, then you'd give it full throttle to keep your airspeed trying to get up to 120. She'd slow down almost to stall. In fact, the airplane would shudder. You swear you're going to kiss your ass on the ground. <clears throat> we'd pick up these gliders. We did that for night and day. No, not night, sundown. And we'd bring them, drop them off in Brussels. That's what my experience with the Belgian professor came from. I did that for about two to three weeks. Just at that time, they blew up the whole airfield in Brussels, the Germans. As we were there on the tight service, now mind you, the front was right just over the hill. 
I got immediate call to get back to my airbase, Ares France. We left, went back to Ares France. Following a few days, we were flying up to Wales, picking up reserve supplies or what have you, taking them to Bastogne. Christmas Eve, we landed in Bastogne. That's a story in itself. We landed in Bastogne Christmas Eve. There must have been maybe 50, 60 airplanes from our wing in the, in the sky at night. Looked like one big Christmas tree. All you had was wing lights, red and green. Christmas Eve, December 24th. We brought the, uh, I think it was the 33rd, I'm not positive about it. Reserve Parachute Division out of Valley Wales in the Badstone. In Badstone, they set up a light that would go straight up, hit the runway. You'd land. Never kill your engines. Threw the crew out, went up. Yeah, shit your pants. I told you, that's why they give you khaki shorts and they give you extra pairs. But that's what a turkey comes in. Now, all these planes, with all this equipment we had, we flew with minimum weight, which meant minimum gas. So when we took off from England with this crew, brought them into Bastogne, you had very little fuel to make it home. Now, this was a cold winter night, right? December. While we're on the ground, they bring us into the kitchen in England. Well, let me tell you the whole story first. We take off from Bastogne with no gas. We get back to England. Now, I think we landed in Southampton. I can't be sure then. I'm not positive the base. But it was a big British air base. Now, here you got all these airplanes coming out of Bastogne with no gas. And all England was fogged up, ground fog. The only base they had that had this fog lifting equipment was, they called it FIDO, fog lifting. You know what it was? 50 gallon drum full of oil, they made a fire in them, and the heat would lift the fog. So all you saw was a runway there. So you got all these airplanes in the sky hollering, mayday, mayday, no fuel. Shit, nobody listened to the tower. You made a left-hand pattern and down you came. We landed. Now, the airbase was jammed, so they taxied us all the way into a cow pasture. <coughs> That's what makes the story interesting. <coughs> in the dark, we go to the base, they take us in the kitchen. Christmas Eve, they offer us tea and crumpets. You haven't eaten for about two days, and they offer you tea and crumpets. <coughs> I could smell them cooking turkeys for the next day. <coughs> So I told Dr. Silvano, Mike, I'll give you a photograph of him. He was a crew chief. I said, we're going to eat. I went in the kitchen. I stole that turkey out of the oven. <clears throat> Greasy, hot, slimy. And I had this leather jacket, you know. We left that, ran out of that kitchen. I should say that, that base. 
the females that were cooking were wafts from the English Air Force. Two were chasing me, hollering, stop that yank! I went to the darkness. How I found the plane in the dark till this day, I can't tell you. You know, I'm talking snow ground and all that. How I found the plane in the dark, couldn't tell you. When I got, got to the plane, I opened the door to cruise and all that damn turkey. The pilot co-pilot were laying in litter sleeping. We devoured that whole turkey, the four of us. No spoons, no knives, no forks, no napkins. God, you deserved it, though. Boy. <laughs> I stole it. Hey. And Dr. Silvano will tell you that story. <laughs> hey, you did what you had to do. Well, I did because I was hungry. That's right. Yeah, I want to give you his photograph. Tea and crumpets, just don't cut it. Huh? Tea and crumpets, just don't cut it. Yeah, it was quite a day. <laughs> quite a day. There's another plane I lost that blew up on the ground. That's a C-46. Now what happened to this plane? <laughs> the hose, the gas hose, supply hose from the tank to the engine <clears throat> was made of, I think, rubber at that time. It fell right off and we couldn't put out the flame. Dr. Silvano, he put the CO2 cartridge on, he, he gunned the engine, we did everything. I said, let's get out before we cook. And we got out. We didn't get five, ten feet away and it blew up. Wow. Another pair of shorts. <laughs> <laughs> That's him. Okay. Okay. So then after uh, the war ended in Europe in May of 1945, no. I don't remember okay. the dates. You know better. But you were assigned then after the war in Europe was over, you couldn't be released from service. <clears throat> Not even, I think it was a few weeks after. I got flying orders, report back to the States. I thought I was getting discharged. I flew into Boston, and we ended up at Port Sheridan. You know, we're all, my gosh, all new recruits, and I'm going home. They gave me a, I think it was a two-week furlough. I went home, and while I was home, I got a telegram to report to Randolph Hill. Okay. And what was your assignment going to be? Radio operator. Okay. On a different kind of airplane? B-29. It was a B-29 base. Okay. So you were going to have to go to the Pacific then? Yeah. After well, serving well, in Europe? Definitely, yeah. I was classified essential. Did you hear me? Essential. And all the good experienced pilots, radar men, engineers were with me. There had to be a thousand of us there. Okay. What state was this uh, field in? Do you remember? Texas. Texas. Big field. Okay. So you started training then on B-29s? <laughs> what training then? All they had to do was teach me a gun. Not okay. the hell. So you're going to be a gunner? Well, you had a gun in you your position. You did, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, while you were in Texas, then the war in Japan ended. 
while I was in Texas, we were doing a little flying and schooling. We had a big swimming pool in the cafeteria, never closed. They treated us like kings, they fed us like kings, believe me. I was there, I, I think, a, a good month at least. And then, of course, the war, the, the atom bomb was dropped. In the end of the war. Okay. Well, thank God for the atom bomb. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I well, thank God Thank God for the end of the war yes. because we deliberately destroyed Japan. And a lot, of, a lot more Americans would have died, too. Very few, because that B-29, the altitude was too high. Was it? Okay. The Japanese couldn't reach you? Couldn't reach you. We could have dropped hundred pound bombs, bombs and incinerating bombs that would have flattened the whole country in one month. Believe me. Yeah. Well, the war ended, and then uh, how much longer did you have to stay in the service? <laughs> That's another thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now they sent me to Greensboro, <coughs> North Carolina. And I developed a rash. In those days, it took forever to cure. They didn't want to release me. They wanted to hospitalize me. I had to sign a medical release to get my discharge. That's how our military works. Here, it says they will take care of you back home. Okay. So then this would have been in early 1946? Yeah. yeah. I think I got out in... Uh, but it should be on there. Okay. Yeah. November I'm sure it's on here somewhere. June, was it? Uh, okay. 30 November? Yeah. 1945? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So did you have any problems readjusting to civilian life after serving so long in the Ar oh, Army sure. Air Forces? Sure. Okay. Sure. You'd, everybody come out, you're disgruntled because decent jobs were taken. You understand? And me, I had a family. I already had a daughter. It was rough. Couldn't get a car. You couldn't get an apartment. You couldn't get a lace box. You couldn't buy nothing. Sure, weren't prepared for that, you know. I was fortunate enough. I had a a mother-in-law and father-in-law that made room in their apartment for us. That's all. Okay. Was this in uh, Chicago? Yeah, yeah, that was in Chicago on Fuller Avenue. Yeah, my father-in-law. I was a good old guy. Okay. So do you have any other stories or last thoughts that you'd like to share with us today? Anything else you'd like to mention? <laughs> you keep talking. Like something will come up. Well, you know about the professor. I, lived with. I okay. told you about him. Gene Wells. He was a very nice guy. Highly intelligent guy. While I was on the state service snatching these lighters, he gave me a, I met him, I went one night in the Bruxelles, kill time. Bad weather, we couldn't fly, so I went to Bruxelles, which was dangerous at that time because it was a front. The buzz bombs used to come by all day long. So anyway, I go to a movie house, and at that, at that time, the Belgian personnel spoke English wore a white star on the lapel. So I got this guy, I was fortunate enough, I was sitting close to me in the, in the Cinemac. And the Cinemac was a Shirley Temple show in English. 
French writing on the bottom. And I said to him, you know, I get a place to sleep tonight. I had a 45 here and a 25 in my hip pocket. And in perfect English, he says, sure, you ain't come on with me. Well, you know, you're freezing your ass off all the time, sleeping in, in the, either a litter or a bedroll. I says, I sure will, I would. <clears throat> I went to his home yet at home, I didn't see much of it, it was dark. I saw it at night the first time, you know, inside the interior, what I remember of it. Anyway, I put my my shoulder holster on the bedpost, and he had a 25 I kept in my hand all night under my pillow because in those days, a lot of dead soldiers were on there. And so, you know, you had collaborators, so you didn't trust nobody. But he could have cut my throat anyway because I was up so soundly. But in the morning when I woke up, I heard clothes I haven't changed in weeks, stunk. In fact, my underwear will probably have changed in two weeks. This, they were all clean, polished, and ironed on the bedpost, you know, waiting for me. Well, what I didn't know all this time, they gave me the maid's quarters. And that poor girl stood up all night cleaning my clothes, you understand? <clears throat> in the morning, he would drop me back at the airbase because he had to pass the airbase to go to the University of Louvain. That's where he taught. He was a professor of economics. So I did this on and off for, I don't know, now it would be three weeks to a month. But uh, I remember a couple of days later, we got still weathered in, so I brought a box of K-rations. And when I got, I got to the house, I couldn't recognize the building because it's like old Taylor Street. There was no such thing as passageway. There was buildings next to each other. And I think he'd lived in this building, the family, for over 100 years. And it was beautiful inside. Uh, the library and the fireplace and his bar and, like, his day room was on the first level. The second level was like a kitchen and what have you, and the third level was the bedrooms. And the bedrooms had, they had transoms. You know, this is an old, old house, but it was so well done. But you got to remember, he was a highly knowledgeable guy, he probably informed. So I lived that way for about two or three weeks. And then him and I got very, very close. I, that's how I told you, I started collecting through him. I'll never forget his library. So you started your own then? Well, like I told you, when I came home, I started selling them books on economics. The guy that owned the bookstore in Long Grove, his name was Van Allen Bradley. He wrote two books. He was a book critic for the Chicago Daily News. He wrote a book called Gold in Your Attic, and he gave a, wrote a reference book which she signed over to me. And at that time, every time I'd pay him a visit to go shopping around, he'd give me shopping bags of books. I had literally brand new books. And I guess it's got me started. <laughs>
I had no way of collecting at that time because uh, I had none but an apartment, three bedroom apartment. There wasn't room to put toilet paper, let alone a bookcase. But that's what got me started. And I've been collecting books since then. Well, thank you very much for coming in and sharing your stories with us. We really appreciate this. Thank you. Well, do you want these?